Well, it is a treat to be here. Somebody grabbed me in the foyer and asked me if I got any tips from Brandon. He spoke last week, and I kind of have a standing rule when Brandon teaches somewhere. If I do the opposite, I think I'll be okay. So anyways, I'll tell Brandon that later on. But no, I'm, I'm glad you guys got to hear him. Uh, we have a long, long history with this church, our family, and I, I mean this. Man, someday when the dead in Christ are raised, Jesus returns, and we all gather in our real home someday the lineage, the heritage that this church has of planting sister churches around the world will be something to behold. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that day. There's already some friends there waiting. There are some friends that you know. There are some friends, some brothers and sisters from the Yembi Church that are waiting there. What a day that will be. Someday. Someday soon. Some of you know uh, my history and background, so I'm just going to give you a little bit of a brief recap so that you know who's talking to you today, why I will say some of the things that I'll say. But uh, I was raised over in Papua New Guinea uh, from two years old, went over there with mom and dad, and w- uh, we went into the Itedi people group. I ended up going off to boarding school from first grade to 12th grade, uh, finished up there, came back to the United States, met my wife in college, went to David Jeremiah's college, uh, Christian Heritage College was the name of it back then, today it's called San Diego Christian College. I got a degree in business administration with an emphasis in accounting. Came out of college, I got a, deg- or a, a job as an accountant, and then started working as an accountant in an accounting firm, and discovered that I had a, a gift for international finance. I started working my way up the ladder of a Dutch company, worked in Germany and the Netherlands quite a bit after college, and my wife and I were looking at a long-term career in that field, and I praise God to this day that this book broke in on my world and gave me a calling, so to speak, in missions. I never got a missions call. I believe that reading this book is a sufficient missions call, and that's what happened with my wife and myself. And so in 1998, we walked away from that job, and we headed off to training. We got training to do the job that we ended up doing among the MBMB people. I am very excited about what Radius does, how we train particular young people, to take the gospel to unreached, unengaged language groups and to plant churches that will outlive ourselves. Someday, when we are dead and gone, by God's grace, these churches that are being planted, they will continue on. And so that's what Radius does. We'll talk a lot about that tonight and some neat things that have been happening recently. So my wife and I got training. We headed over to the country of Papua New Guinea where I had been raised and already knew the national language. My wife learned the national language of the country and then we got a list handed to us of seven tribes that had been asking for missionaries for five years or more. They don't make the list unless they're asking for five consecutive years for missionaries to come. And they're not asking because they love Jesus. They're not asking because they're seeking the truth. They're asking because they want the missionary to come and bring the little white pills that will help their babies live. And they hear that there's some talk that comes with the missionary. Once the missionary learns the language and the culture of the people, there's some talk that comes and it totally changes the whole village and the whole language group as a whole. And the gospel does change people. Man, that is, that is something that we can be proud of. The gospel does change entire cultures, but it changes them for the better. And so that's what they were asking for. And so we ended up through a series of different events, landing with the Yembi Yembi people. Uh, we moved in among them. 
And I remember the first time meeting them. If you ever fly into Yembiembi, they'll stu- still do this for you if they like you. If they, if they don't like you, don't ask what they do. But if they like you, they take a huge hunk of mud. You get off the airplane and they take a huge hunk of mud. They push it into your face, push it all the way down. Then they take diced up flower petals. They throw them at your face and it sticks to the mud. And so that's when you come into the village for the first time. Now you're beautiful. Now you're ready to come in. So that was our greeting. That was my wife's greeting as we went into Yembi Yembi and we became members of that community. We started learning their language and culture, and they asked us if we would like to become members of the different clans. There's four clans in Yembi Yembi. There's the ostrich clan, there's the eagle clan, there's the black cockatoos, and the toucans. And so when we moved in, we said, yes, we would. We'd like to be uh, members of the community to the fullest extent that we can be. And uh, so they looked at me. I've got these really long legs, and I've got this nose that's a little bit crooked, and they said, you're definitely in the ostrich clan. So they put me... (laughs) Me and the ostrich clan. My wife has long blonde hair. They put her in the eagle clan. And then uh, one of our co-workers' wives, she has curly brown hair. They put her in the black cockatoo clan. And they put us all in these different clans. And then they gave us uh, certain family members. They gave us new names. We had to learn how to hunt. I was just telling the youth group uh, uh, last hour, they came to myself and my two co-workers and they asked us if we'd ever killed a pig. One of the guys on the team was from Minneapolis and he'd been on a pig farm and he'd done however they kill pigs when they do the stun gun thing or I I don't know how they do that. But anyways, he said, yeah, I have. They said, no, 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 no. Have you ever killed a pig at night by yourself with a spear? (laughs) No, no, never done that one. (laughs) They gathered together as a little group and they came up with a name for us. See, a boy changes into a man in Yembiembi culture when he kills a pig by himself at night with a spear. And we were obviously these men who had children. We'd gotten married. Something had gone wrong along the process. And so they came up with a name for us. They called us overgrown boys because we were these massive bodied guys. Most of them are about this tall. They've got shoulders really far out here because they've been paddling canoes their whole life. But they they couldn't figure out how our fathers and our grandfathers had let us get married without actually killing a spear or killing a pig with a spear. So we had to take nine months to learn how to hunt pigs with a spear and to kill our first pig so that we could be officially men in the Yembiembi community. Guys, we did that. We took two and a half years to learn their language so that when the gospel came for the first time, it didn't come as an outsider. It didn't come from a boy. It came from somebody that they knew, that they respected, that they knew understood everything that they had gone through. Have you ever thought about why Jesus was here on earth for 30 years before we have one day of recorded ministry? 30 years, becoming a local, becoming an insider. That's Joseph and Mary's son. That's the carpenter's son. He knows how the weather weather patterns work. He knows what tastes good to a Jewish mouth. He knows these things. He's walked the paths with us. He's become an insider. And for us, as we brought the gospel, not for our own credibility, for the credibility of the gospel, to be known as insiders. And finally, we got to the point to where we knew their language well enough and we told them we're going to start the teaching next month. When the moon goes down, next month we will start the entire reason why we came here. 
whole tribe turned out in mass, over a thousand people in Yembe And we did not start in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm a firm believer that if somebody does not understand Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, there's no way they understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. To understand what we're being saved from. So that when the solution, when the doctor, when the medicine comes on the scene, we know what the, we know what the illness is. And the Yembies, the Yembies aren't like you guys. You guys have been raised in schools. The Yembies, very few of them had gone through any sort of institutionalized learning. The Yembies, if they like what you're saying, they'll sit in the back and they'll yell from the back, Keep talking! Keep talking! This talk is good to my belly! The belly is the seat of their emotions. Ours is our heart, theirs is their belly. So they'll say, this talk is good to my belly, it's going down good, this feels good, keep talking. Or they'll turn to the person next to them, next to them and they'll say, did you hear what he said? Yeah, that was really good. Hey, say that part again, say that part again. I mean, just, it's a free for all. And then if they don't like what you're saying, they will yell in the back, hey, my ears are hurting. This talk is about to be vomited up. Enough, stop your talk. So you're getting constant feedback. So the Yembies, they sit, we would sit in the teaching house. We don't have a church there. We have a teaching house, and the church gathers in the teaching house. And the Yembies would sit in a 360 circle, and you're teaching to people all around you. And so we would teach, and we would act things out. And we started teaching on creation. And we started teaching about this God who is very different from your gods. No man is a blank slate. doesn't matter if you're going to India, Papua New Guinea, or China. Nobody is a blank slate. They have preconceptions. They have belief systems. And our goal during that process Process was to bring the God of the scriptures into intentional conflict with their gods to make them choose which one will you believe they cannot both be true one is true one is false you choose and the God of the scriptures who creates all things and gives them freely to Adam and Eve because he loves them we flew in foods from Australia we actually flew in a sheep from Australia, it came in, these were different, we flew in different things from around the country that they'd never tasted before, cut them up in the smallest possible pieces so a thousand people could taste this particular food for the first time. Taste these things. They saw the sheep getting off the airplane, everybody's mouth is watering. What's it going to taste like? You're talking about a group of people that's one generation removed from cannibalism. That sheep is just, yeah, it's not got a long lifespan. <laughs> And to see them fall in love with this God, to see them care about this God, who God makes all these foods. Does God eat food? No. Why does he create such wondrous variety? Because he cares for you. He cared for Adam. He cared for Eve. He cares for his kids. And to see the God of the Bible, his name being lifted up before them. And then we get to chapter 3. And we, we would teach and we would act things out. And my coworker's wife, she's Eve. And I'm Satan dressed up in a black bed sheet. And don't ask about that. <laughs> and we teach about the fall of mankind. And as Eve, my coworker's wife, we're acting this out. She's reaching out and we had this tree and we had tied some fruit to it. And she's reaching out and she's touching the fruit. And I'm whispering in her ear, Eve, if you, if you eat the fruit, your eyes will be open and you'll be just like God. Remember the Yembies. The Yembies are sitting in the back. Eve, you idiot, what are you doing? What do you think that stuff is in your belly? Where did that food come from? Don't you know God's goodness? Don't you know the God that you're about to turn your back on? Don't do it. And I'm whispering in her ear. I'm whispering as loud as I can for a thousand people to hear at the same time. Eve, it's okay. It's okay. 
Be strong. Be brave. You can do this. Just eat the fruit. And the Yembies, these are unsaved people, so they're cussing me out. What are you doing? They're yelling. And they were getting up, and they're trying to pull Eve back from eating the fruit. We got to stop the skit. Sit down. It's a skit. We're acting these things out. I know, but she's about to. I know. This is the story. My coworker's wife reaches out, takes the fruit, takes a bite. And the whole place goes quiet. Because they don't see fables and fairy tales. They don't see these fancy stories. They see their ancestors. They see your ancestors. My ancestors. And what happens to them will trickle down to the Yembis today. And the promise of God that when we broke out from God, the ramifications of the fall would come. God in his grace, we took a branch from that tree, we ripped it off and we hung it in the teaching house for the next three months as we continued to teach. And the leaves at the end of that branch as they started to turn brown and then they fell off. The promise of God that when our ancestor broke out from him, the, tr- the ramifications as it goes down that we would bury people. Pain in childbirth, oh my goodness. 30% of our girls in their teens and in their 20s that had their babies when we first moved in died in childbirth. These aren't things that are theoretical. These are real. Thorns and thistles, working by the sweat of your brow, to dust, from dust you were formed to dust you will return. These are real concepts of the Yembis. But there's another half to Genesis chapter 3, and it says this, someday I will send someone who has the power to put the branch back in the tree, to make things right between God and man again. Guys, I, I wouldn't have believed it if I, if I hadn't have been there. We get to the next story the next day of Cain and Abel of God forming Cain, and somebody stands up in the Yemi crowd, and they go, wait, 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 wait. Stop the teaching. Stop the talk. Stop the talk. This one you speak of, this Cain one, is he the one? What do you mean? Is he the one who will make things right between God and man again? Is he the one? No, he's not the one. He's not the one. Okay, okay. Keep the talk going. He sits back down, and we keep the talk going. Every Old Testament character we introduced, somebody would stand up, wait, 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 wait. Is he the one? Is he the one? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon, are these guys the one who will make things right again with God and man? Surely one of these ones. You wouldn't be telling us stories just to leave out the most important one. No. He's coming, he's coming. Every Old Testament character is leading towards that one who will come someday. And we finally get to the New Testament and we tell him, guys, we've only got three more weeks of talk left. And John the Baptist is standing there and John the Baptist says, look, he sees Jesus walking in front of the river Jordan and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Seven Yembi Yembi stand up in the back. Wait, 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 wait. This one Jono speaks of. This one Jono sees. Is he the one? He's the one, guys. He's the one. He is the one that we left our families for. He is the one we've come to tell you about. He is the entire reason we are here. Oh, man. I mean, the whole place is in uproar for five minutes. Talk is flying. Stop talking about the talk of John. We want to know about this one. Enough. 
No, 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 we've got to build the house. We build the house from the bottom up. And so we got to do the talk of John. And so the Yembis, as we started to get into Jesus and how Jesus came for people like the Yembis. Jesus cared for the tax collector. Jesus cared for the prostitutes. For the ones that are off scouring of society, the Yembis, there's a reason why it's taken to 2008 for the gospel to get to them. They're hard to get to. They have a very difficult language. It took long for the gospel to get to them, but Jesus instinctively cared for people like that. Jesus cared for the marginalized of our society. And they were able to see this instinctively in our God and the way that he cared about people and to watch the Yembis fall in love with Jesus, fall in love with this one who they didn't even know would die for them. To see that that was the type of character that he had. And guys, I don't have time to get into the story of how the day that we presented the gospel, what happened on that day when 45 to 50, we believe, understood the gospel for the first time, that they were saved from their sins. We had a reoccurring skit of a Yembi Yembi coming to the doorway of heaven. And on either side of him is this massive book. We had a Webster's Dictionary. His book of sins. And on the other side is this dark water, his Adam part, and how these two things would not allow him to enter into heaven. And anything he did, anything that a good Yembi does, we did multiple skits on what a good Yembi does, these things would block him. And finally, a Yembi comes to the gate of heaven and God asks him, why should I allow you in? You shouldn't allow me in. But because of the blood of your son, I know that my sins are paid for, that I am a son and daughter of you now. And I am able to enter in. And God reaches over, grabs these two things, throws them to the side and welcomes them into heaven. And to see the Yembis for the first time understanding who their creator is, what a day it must have been like in heaven to have the first people of that language group entering into the family of God, to the people of God, the historic people of God from the beginning of time all the way up to 2008, April. If you have your Bibles, I do actually want to get to the Bible today. Romans chapter 10. Let's turn there because I do want to touch on a few things. That's the Yembi story in brief, but I want to touch on a couple things about the strategy and the priority of getting to people groups like the Yembi Yembis. And the Yembis are representative of a lot of different countries. You've got a lot of flags up here. So don't think when I'm speaking about them, I'm speaking strictly about tribal people. We're talking about unreached, unengaged people groups. And why there's a certain priority that the Apostle Paul seems to give to those particular people groups. Romans chapter 10. We're going to hit on that and then we're going to hit on Romans 15. It says this in Romans 10 verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. How then will they call on the one of whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? Paul is asking a series of rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions are questions that everybody knows the answer to. If somebody doesn't go and preach to them, If they don't hear the message of the gospel, they cannot be saved. They will not be saved, and they will go to a Christless eternity. Romans 1, verse 20. Go back to that. This seems to be something that is hard for a lot of different Western audiences. We're not going to dive into that, but if you have questions on this, see that particular verse. 
everyone is without excuse. There is enough in creation from the way that the sun rises, from the way that the seasons work, from the way that we see all of the celestial the celestial stars, the celestial beings, from the way that all of these things communicate to us, there is enough knowledge of God for men to know there is a God to be condemned, but not enough to be saved. That's the message of Romans one twenty. A lot of people ask me, I speak at this camp down in Mexico and I get a lot of college students that come down. I was speaking at LSU a few weeks back and somebody asks me a question. Typically it goes like this. What about the innocent guy in Africa? The innocent man in Africa who never got a chance to hear the gospel. What about him? What will God do with him when he dies someday and he stands before Christ? No one ever shared the gospel with him. He's innocent. And here's the answer, guys. According to Romans 1.20, he doesn't exist. He doesn't exist. There is no one innocent before God. We have enough knowledge of God from the things that we see to be condemned but not enough to be saved. So we continue to send We continue to go. We continue to reach. The generations that have gone ahead of us, that's on my father and that's on my grandfathers. The generations to come, that's on my son and my grandchildren. But for this generation, these are the generations that are in my hands, in your hands. These are the generations that we are responsible for to do our very best to get the gospel to those places that have not heard to those individuals that have not heard. He continues on here and he says this in verse 15. And how beautiful and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I love what John Piper says. I think he gets it exactly right. If you believe this book to be true, you have three options when it comes to missions. Option number one, we go. Option number two, we send. Option number three, we disobey. We have three options. If you don't believe this book to be true, you have many options. But if you believe this book to be true, we go, we send, or we disobey. We are part of this global initiative to take the gospel to the people groups that still have no gospel, no disciples, and most importantly, no church. We go and we push to those last frontiers. I remember hearing the story about missionaries heading overseas and how a missionary is like somebody going down a well and there's this rope and he's hanging on to this rope and this rope is his home church and he's going down deeper and deeper and deeper into that well and his hands, he's going to use every bit of force he has to hang on to that rope. But there are men and women at the top of the well that are letting the rope out that are senders from the home church, letting that rope out wisely, encouraging, supporting. And someday when Jesus returns, Jesus is going to ask the guys who went down the well, show me your hands. Show me your hands. Show me what it cost you to take the gospel to those last places. But he's going to ask the guys at the top of the well as well, show me your hands. Show me your scars. He's not going to ask the hands of St. John's First Baptist or the Sunday school classes. He's going to ask us each individually. What did you do? I praise God for men 
like Jack Griffin from my church in San Diego who drove an older car so that the MBMBs could hear the gospel. For Shirley Friedman, for Marv Friedman, who's in heaven now, and the way that they live, their lifestyle reflecting their priorities, who Dave Johnson with his travel agency and how he leveraged his business so that the missionaries could get a little bit cheaper tickets to get to the field. Everyone is in this. We're goers or we're senders. And if we're goers, we're radical goers. And if we're senders, we're radical senders. Turn over to Romans 15. Romans 15, verse 18. Paul, church history records that he came out of prison in A.D. 63... Uh, he was acquitted of all charges. And then he goes to visit Titus on the island of Crete. Then he goes to the island of Nicopolis and he writes the book of First Timothy and Titus. And then after that, he goes on his final missionary journey. Some say he goes to Spain and even continues and makes it all the way to Britain. But most commentators aren't really sure. But church historians tell us that before he did any of that, he wrote a book. He wrote a letter, actually. It was a letter and he sent this letter off hoping that this one particular church would support him on that final missionary journey as he goes to Spain. And he writes this book, and it's a doctrinal treaty, and it's an excellent little motivational, but the core thrust of this letter is to ask them to help support him as a missionary. We know this book as the book of Romans. The book of Romans is a really doctrinally tight missionary support letter. Paul wrote the Romans, and if you see most commentators, the key thrust of it is, here's who I am, here's what I believe, will you support me as I go on to Spain? And he doesn't get to that till we get to chapter 15. But there's some really interesting things in here, I just want to touch on this a little bit. It says in Romans 15, verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. To bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Paul is saying, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, I have been able to perform signs and wonders, and accompanying that with teaching, I have seen Gentiles come to repentance. Now, from Jerusalem all the way up to Illyricum, in between you've got Colossae, you've got Ephesus, you've got Corinth, you've got Galatia, I've fully proclaimed the gospel of God. Paul is making an audacious statement, and he doesn't stop there. He doubles down. We're going to skip over verses 20, 21, and 22, because this is a chiastic pattern. In our day and age, if somebody wants to make a point when they write, they put the main point at the end. In this day and age, the main point was in the middle. So we're going to skip the middle, and we're going to come back to it as our main point. So we're going to skip over to verse 23. And verse 23 carries on with this thought, and he says this. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul says, listen to the audaciousness of this. Paul says, there's no more work for me to do from Jerusalem all the way up to Illyricum. There's nothing left for me to do. 
Paul is making an incredibly audacious statement. Church historians estimate that of all the people from Jerusalem to Illyricum, only 2% of the population was exposed to Paul's message, not got saved, was even exposed to his message. How in the world can Paul say there's nothing left to do? This is a reached area. There's no more work to do here. How can he say that? You know how? There's churches, little churches, dotting the landscape from Jerusalem all the way up to Illyricum. Is this a reached region? In Paul's way of viewing the world, it is. Because there are thousands, hundreds in some cities, of missionaries. We don't call them missionaries. You know what we call them? We call them church members. San Diego is a reached city. You know how? Shadow Mountain Community Church exists there. Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church exists there. The Rock Church exists there. St. John's, according to Paul's definition, is a reached city. Because you live here. You are the missionary for St. John's. We don't call you a missionary, we call you a church member. And this is where you minister. But for Paul, Paul says, there's nothing left for me to do. He had to push on to Spain. Does Paul not care about those churches there? No. That's why he leaves Timothy and Titus behind to shepherd and to grow these churches up. But for Paul, the pioneer church planner, this is a reached area. We have to have a tighter definition of where missions goes and why it goes there. Paul is saying without a church, a church is the mark of a reached area. Does it have a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church? If it does... We keep moving. We keep moving. Paul finishes up and we go back to that middle section. He says this in verse 20. And thus I have made it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. Lest I, have built on some, lest I build on somebody else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. We keep pushing. We keep pressing. We don't plant more churches in Jerusalem and Illyricum as long as there are Spains and Britons. We keep pressing to those last places that have no gospel, no disciples, and no church. We have the vision. That's not the full thrust of the missions ministry, but that has to be part of the thrust of what we do. To get to those last places that have none of those things. When I was wrapping up my time in Papua New Guinea, uh, we had a tribe, a group of people called the Garmambu people that were sending out ambassadors. They didn't have anybody in their language that could write letters asking for missionaries. So we, we had to figure out if we were going to go in there and uh, if we were going to put a missionary team in there. And so I drew the short straw on the leadership team and I said, I'll go in there. So I gathered my tribal father, went back into Yembe Yembe. Uh, I told the Yembe elders, at that time we had elders in the church, and I said, I'm going to go to this one particular people group. And they said, wow, 
that's way out there. We've heard of those people. You should take one of the, uh, the older men of the tribe who's a believer. So my tribal father, Lucas, is going with me. And we take off. We land at this particular airfield. It's about two hours away from Yembiembi, which is probably about three weeks hiking if we were going to hike there. And we started, uh, we got in a motor canoe. We motor canoed for about an hour. And then we got on our hiking boots and we started hiking. And we hiked for about an hour, and we made it into the sister tribe of the Garamambu people called the Yarakai. And we got into Yarakai, and they don't see a lot of six-foot-two white guys hiking into their village. And uh, they were pretty excited, and they said, what are you guys doing here? And we said, we're going to Garamambu. It's uh, over the mountain range over there. And they said, oh, okay. And I always carry wads of candy with me whenever I go on these types of uh, trips. And I said, if there are any little kids who want to carry our bags, because we had all these bags with rice and fish in them so that we could have food on the trip, I said, I will give candy now, and I will give candy at the end of the hike. Boom, bags are gone, taken off down the trail. Bags head over the mountain. Uh, we make it to the next village called Nawe, and we hike into Nawe, and the little kids have let everybody know, there's this white guy coming, and he speaks the language of this other guy, and so we're way out there in the jungle now. So we've got more kids, and they want candy, and I give them candy, and they're carrying little stuff, and we keep hiking. We hike over the mountain, and we get down into the Gatamambu territory, and we hike into Gatamambu, and we can hear the drums about three miles out, letting everybody know that we're coming. We hike into Gatamambu territory, and I'll never forget this. Their leaders come out, and they're coming out to greet us. And what they do in Gatamambu, if they like you, they come up to you like they're going to give you a hug, and they drop down on all fours, and they crawl between your legs. And so I've got this line of about 30 guys, and I'm waddling my way to the middle of the village. And I get there, and they've killed a baby pig as a welcome gift to us, and uh, everybody's just dancing and singing. And my tribal father goes to me. He goes, eldest white son. That's what he calls me. I'm his only white son, but he calls me eldest white son. He goes, eldest white son, do you know what's going on? And I go, no. And he goes, they think you're the one. What do you mean? They think you're the one that's come to be their missionary. That's why they're so excited. And I grab the tribal chief and I'm like, listen, listen, listen. I'm not the guy. I'm here for three days and then I'm going to be leaving. And we're working through two interpreters here because he doesn't know my language. He doesn't know the Yembe language. I don't know his language. So we've got to work through two interpreters. And I think he understands, but I'm not really sure. And so we stay there for three days and we go all around that village. We take pictures. We write down their language so we can get language samples. We uh, record a few different texts. We do a whole bunch of stuff. Everywhere we go, there's about 300 little kids that are going with us. They put us in this little house and the house has bark walls and bark floor. And what happens to bark when it dries is it forms these little cracks in it. So you wake up in the morning and there's these little eyeballs that are staring through the cracks of the walls and the floor looking at us everywhere we go these little kids are following us and finally we get to the third day and I wake up and I pull out the satellite phone I call the pilot and I say Lord willing in nine hours we're going to be at the airfield I'll call you on the way if something happens pack the satellite phone back up put it in my backpack put my shoes on and all the little eyeballs have been watching this the whole time and I pop outside and there's the village chief because they all ran off and told him he's putting his shoes on they're getting ready to go and he says we have to have a meeting we have to have a meeting and he pulls me and my tribal father and we go and we sit in this house and I'll never forget this we sit in this house and his two uh, he's got two wives 
and they're sitting on either side of me, and these are elderly women. They have no teeth left from chewing betel nut their whole life, and they've got pure white hair, and they're taking little pieces of food. I'm sitting in between them, and they're shoving it in my mouth from either side. They're trying to be nice to me. And their husband gets up, and he stands up, and he's working through an interpreter, and he says, okay, I see that you've put your shoes on, and I see that you're getting ready to leave, but I want to know, when is our missionary coming? When will the one come who is going to learn our language like you know his language and live with us? And I know that we we don't have anybody in the pipeline for another six months or so. And I said, it's going to be a while. It's going to be a while. I'm trying to be evasive. I'm trying to be diplomatic. And I sit back down. And he gets up, and he's not the chief for no reason. He knows that I dodged his question. And he goes, no, 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 no. I would like to know how many moons will go by before our missionary comes, before the talk comes to our village. And I'm starting to sweat bullets. And I stand up and I say, it's going to be a lot of moons. It's going to be a lot of moons. It'll be a long time. And he gets up a third time. By this time, he's fairly frustrated because he knows I'm dodging him. And he stands up and he slams his fist down. He goes, no. I want a number. Tell me a number. And my tribal father looks at me and he goes, eldest white son, I'll tell him. I'll tell him. And I'm just like, thank you so much. Because Lucas was the one who wrote the letters for us for seven years. Seven years he wrote the letters asking for somebody to come to his tribe. And Lucas stands up, and I'll never forget what he said. He says, look around. He points his finger and he goes, look around. Everyone here with gray hair will be dead before your missionary comes. That's how long it took for us. That's how long it'll take for you. Two ladies on either side of me, their hands come off, the food goes down, and they start crying. Guys, we hiked out of that village that day. We hiked in like we were conquering heroes, and we hiked out that day. It was one of the worst feelings of my life. And we are just now, in the seventh year, getting somebody that is looking at going to that particular people group. Lucas was right. And they may make it in there by the eighth year. As the church... As the body of Christ, the Great Commission was not given to individuals. It was given to the church. We continue to move. We continue to go. We continue to send. And we send radically. And we go radically. Because the job isn't finished. There's still a job remaining for us as the church, as the body of Christ to fulfill. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, Father God, Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for loving us, for giving of your own family, for sending him to become sin for us and to make a way so that we could be made family. Thank you, Father God, that you have promised you will be with us to the very end of the age. Thank you for this body of believers and what they have done to affect your name, to bring glory to your name in various corners of the earth. But Lord, the job is not done. There still remains much to do. Help us not to rest on our laurels. Help us not to rest until we have done everything within our power to make your name known to those last places, those last peoples that have no gospel and no church. Father, help us to be adamantly about your business so that someday when we reach home, 
we reach it with a sense of satisfaction that we gave everything we could. Our energies, our time, our influence for your causes. In your name we pray these things. Amen.